Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello and welcome to the Naked Scientist's Newsflash with me, Ben Valsler. Bringing us the latest science news this week is Chris Smith, Helen Scales and Mira Senthalingam. Coming up, how sneaky snakes fool fish into becoming lunch. It's extraordinary. He looked at four different snakes in these uh, trials in aquariums. Uh, 120 times he looked at these snakes attacking fish. And 78% of the time, they swam towards the snake, not away. So it's just really clever. This really is a good way of, of confusing their prey into swimming towards them. How small pieces of RNA could be used to shut down cancers. What about if you lose those RNAs? Could that mean the cells become cancerous? Well, that's what scientists have begun to discover, that when cells stop making these RNAs, then you've got suddenly the handbrake taken off on this cellular car. It can sort of roll along when it shouldn't. And so what this group of researchers did was to say, well, if we take some tumours and we put some of these RNAs back into them that they seem to have lost the ability to make, will this turn off cancer? And Miracenthalingam attends the launch of Pestival to find out why it's important to maintain the health of our bees. Fruits won't ripen, we won't get flower seeds without having pollination, which actually fertilises the seeds so that they can grow into fruits. Apples, pears and all the flowers that we love in our gardens, they depend on pollinators as well. That's all on the way. There's an old wives' tale that snakes can hypnotise their prey. I think if you've seen the Jungle Book cartoon, the Disney version, you've seen something like that. But Don't new- cobras do something like that as well when they sort of sway their head back and forth? Isn't that supposed to be? Maybe, possibly. But anyway, this new study has revealed, I think, something that's even more amazing and definitely real, this definitely happens, that's going on in the snake world. Tentacled snakes have evolved an astonishing way of tricking small fish into swimming right into their mouths. Kenneth Catania from the Vanderbilt University in Tennessee in the US has uncovered how these snakes confuse the fish into swimming towards them instead of away from them. And the reaction of the fish is so predictable that the snake aims at the spot, not where the fish is, and then track it across where, where it's moving to, which is what predators normally do, but it actually anticipates and aims at the spot where the fish will arrive at when it's turned towards the snake. Can you just tell us, what is a tentacled snake and how is that different from a normal snake? These are extraordinary creatures. They really are unique. They look more or less like any other snake, except on their snouts. They've got these two little tentacles that wriggle around. None, nothing else looks like that. They're actually a type of mud snake and they live in freshwater and brackish water across Southeast Asia. And, uh, and when they are hunting, they take up this very characteristic J shape in their bodies. They can hook their heads around um, and wait for fish to come along. I'm just looking at the paper. It's beautiful pictures in this paper. And, and and it is that the, the, the snake's body actually makes the head of it look sort of like the end of a fish hook. Yeah, or, or a hockey stick or something. It hooks right around, exactly. So how does that help? So what that, what's going on basically is when a fish comes up to it, because these are fish, they, they'll be mostly catching their food in the water, fish and sometimes amphibians, and um, they'll wait for the fish to come along. And uh, then they will basically just strike out and catch the fish. But what's going on with the fish is something also that's really interesting. It's, some, um, it's actually an automatic reflex that the fish has um, to escape 
predation. So fish have um, ears, like humans do, and instead of hearing through air, they hear through water, and they've got one ear on either side of the body. And what happens is that if a pressure wave, a sound, comes towards them, it'll hit one ear before the other. Oh, so they, turn, they think it's coming from that direction, so they turn the opposite yeah, way. Yeah, absolutely, and it's actually a very, very, very quick response because the snakes can react within 15 to 20 milliseconds, but the fish can move even faster than that. And so it's called, in fact, it's called a C-start reaction. And um, the ear actually sends um, a signal almost directly to the muscles on one side of the body. So the fish flips round in a C-shape and swims off in the other direction, away from the, sat no the source of the noise. And so presumably, can, I, can I guess where you're going to go with this and say the snake therefore sends the sound using the other end of its body, its tail or something, so the sound comes from the other direction. The fish thinks, oops, it's coming from over there, turns the opposite way and goes straight in the snake's mouth. Exactly. It's, it's absolutely extraordinary. That a little way down the uh, the snake, um, it, it kind of it flexes its muscles and makes what um, this guy, um, Catania, actually measured with a hydrophone. He popped a hydrophone into the into the tank he was studying these guys in and picked up a sound that was enough, he thinks, to trigger this sea start response, this swimming away response in the fish, but in the wrong direction. And he looked at, it's extraordinary, he looked at four different snakes in these uh, trials in aquariums. Um, so 120 times he looked at these um, snakes um, attacking fish and 78% of the time they swam towards the snake, not away. So it's just really clever. This really is a good way of, of confusing their prey into swimming towards them. It's amazing to think how something has evolved to outstep something else that evolved a defensive mechanism. So it's, it's so sort of clever. evolved to take advantage of someone else's this kind of this, this way of doing it. It's really extraordinary. And the next thing he wants to do, actually, is to figure out if this predictive ability... Because the really clever thing is, as well, that the, fish, the snakes are going for where the fish are going to end up, not where they actually are right now. Um, it's probably going so quickly, you wouldn't even be able to see these things. It's going so fast. You actually... He had to use very high-speed cameras to look at this. Um, but he wants to do this uh, with baby snakes, just after they've hatched, to see if it's actually learnt, uh, learnt behaviour, which we'll be hearing about in a minute with the sticklebacks um, or whether it's hardwired um, and see what these little baby snakes do the first time they try and catch their dinner. Fantastic. Thank you, Helen. Snappy story. Now, also this week, scientists have potentially discovered a new way to combat cancer and turn off tumours by giving cells a dose of a very small piece of genetic material. This is a paper in the journal Cell. It's by Jeremy, Jerry Mendel and his colleagues at Ohio State University. Um, basically, what they're doing is building on the premise that was discovered in recent years that one of the ways in which genes can be controlled in cells is not just by proteins called transcription factors turning genes on and off, but also the presence of small regulatory pieces of genetic material called microRNAs. And these can turn genes on, and in some cases they can also turn them off. And one thing that scientists have realised in recent years is that one of the reasons they turn genes off is to stop them growing, because genes... All cells have plumbed into them genes which make the cells grow very vigorously, for instance, during embryonic development, and also allow cells to move around, because when an embryo is developing, cells which start in one bit of the body sometimes have to migrate over distances to go to another part of the body to take up their final position. But once they get there, you don't want them to move anymore, so you want to be able to lock the cells in position and stop them growing. So that's where these microRNAs come in. They turn on and they switch off the genes that make those cells move and grow like that. So... What about if you lose those RNAs? Could that mean the cells become cancerous? Well, that's what scientists have begun to discover, that when cells stop making these RNAs, perhaps because the mechanism that makes them in a cell goes wrong, then you've got suddenly the handbrake taken off on this cellular car. It can sort of roll along when it shouldn't. And so what this group of researchers did was to say, well, if we take some tumours and we put some of these RNAs back into them that they seem to have lost the ability to make, will this turn off cancer? So how 
So how do you put them in into the cells? How are they actually getting them inside in where they want them to be? Sure, very very important point. In this instance, they were using experimental mice that are programmed to develop uh, liver cancers. And what they did was to make viruses called adeno-associated viruses. These are just basically the shell of the virus, and they replaced the genetic material of the virus with new copies of this RNA that was missing in the cells. And they then injected these viruses into a blood vessel that was supplying the mice liver. And what this meant is that the viruses then infected all of the liver cells, carrying in these therapeutic small RNA genes. And the result was actually quite striking. When they looked at the numbers, they had a number of animals that were treated with a therapeutic gene like this, and then a second group of animals that were just controls. Amongst the control group, all of them got very nasty liver cancers in a very short space of time. Six out of eight of them were, uh, had what's called fulminant liver failure. But amongst the therapeutic group, eight out of ten of the animals had no traces of cancer. So it looked like that you were adding this gene to the liver and it, what it was doing was turning off the cancerous process and also causing cells that were going to become cancer, cancerous not only to stop growing but also to kill themselves, which argues this could work in us. And liver cancer is a really big killer, isn't it? It's a terrible disease. Is this going to be a, a non-toxic way of treating, uh, tr- treating this disease? Because by the sounds of it, if this is something that we have in our cells anyway, naturally, then if we're just putting it back, then that's not going to cause any nasty side effects, is it? It's a very important point, and, and that's exactly what they say. They do address that in their paper, and they say, look, um, most cells in the body have got this gene turned on already, and it's the loss of the gene that makes a cell harmful. Therefore, putting the gene into cells that have already got it doesn't change anything, doesn't change the status quo. Putting it into cells that have lost it and therefore could turn cancerous is actually going to rescue those cells and prevent them becoming cancerous. So therefore, it won't do any harm if you do have it. It will definitely help if you don't. So I guess it's early dates, though, isn't it? But hopefully we can see this perhaps in the future as being a new way of looking at how to treat cancers and, and get rid of these terrible diseases. Absolutely right. And at the moment, the only way we can tackle cancers is with cytotoxic cell-killing drugs that have all kinds of nasty side effects. Actually combating cancer at the genetic level, because cancer is a genetic disease, is a very promising direction to take. And I think this is very exciting work. It's very early days. It's in experimental animals, obviously. But it doesn't normally take that long, and we're talking a decade rather than hundreds of years, to translate this to to clinical trials so i hope we'll start seeing some kind of repercussions of this kind of work coming out in in the in the ward soon let's hope so well i'm going to move back into the animal world now with another rather extraordinary discovery this week well it's not really a discovery we know about giant sperm already these are found in various animals in the animal kingdom but we've now found fossil giant sperm in ancient crustaceans and it's revealed just how long these enormous male sex cells have been around for and the fact that the oceans 100 million years ago were full of males hotly competing with each other over who gets the best mates still hamster today, doesn't it? <laughs> Indeed it does. Through nightclubs in Cambridge. Indeed like it does. Maybe not through giant sperm in, in nightclubs. But anyway, this was a paper Thank God. <laughs> in the journal Science, which I've got right here, by Renate Matzke-Karatz from the Ludwig Maximilians University in Germany. And they, that was a team of researchers who studied the internal organs of some 100 million year old ostracods. Now they are a relative of crabs and lobsters, a type of crustacean. And in fact, they look a bit like a mussel, which is a type of mollusk, which is a very different type of animal, but they have a similar 
um, shell that they live inside with two two bivalves, two shells that stick together. And they're sometimes called seed shrimp. And that's really obvious if you take a look at one. I've got the paper here in front of me and it does look a bit like a bean. Um, only these are really tiny. They're about a millimetre um, long. And they're thought to be about 65,000 ostracods alive at the moment. And they live in marine and fresh water. 65,000 or 65,000 species. Oh, species, sorry. 65,000 species. Pretty rare. If- <laughs> <laughs> no, there's, there's a lot, few more than that. Um, but they, they live in marine and fresh water. And some of the modern day male ostracods have extraordinarily big sperm. I'm talking ex- just the biggest sperm you can imagine. How big, Chris, do you think it could possibly be compared to the size of these little creatures? Well, come on, put me out of my misery. So how big are these creatures again? They're so mi- about a millimetre. The creatures are a millimetre and the sperm are how big? Can be up to 10 millimetres. So 10 times, times the size of... Their they're producing sperm yeah, 10 times the size, the size of their of body? Their, the length of their body, all wrapped up and squished inside them. Isn't that Why? extraordinary? It's a really good question. And what they found now is that this also happened in these fossil uh, fossil ostracods 100 million years ago, the same thing of huge sperm. Why have huge sperm? Well, it's all got to do basically with male competing for females. If there's uh, lots of males around competing with each other to get a mate, then for some species, to ensure that you pass on your genes to the next generation, it can make sense for males to make really enormous sperm because that can increase the chance that their sperm will be the ones that fertilise the eggs inside the female and uh, sort of help stop other males from being the successful ones. And uh, it's not only in these ostracods we see it in something a bit more familiar. Um, fruit fly, Drosophila, they um, have sperm that's six millimetres long and they're only a couple of millimetres long themselves. So it's really quite bizarre. And I think it's probably best if we don't make an analogy for human beings. But, yes, don't do that. But this study does shed light onto the evolution of this peculiar male trait and uh, showed that, you know, for a long time now, size really has mattered. Yep, I know that. Thank you, Helen. Now, also this week, fish are into social networking, it seems. What I mean by that is that they can learn from each other. There's a wonderful paper in the Journal of Behavioural Ecology. This has been done by Durham University researcher Jeremy Kendall. And what he did was to go down to his local river, catch about 300 sticklebacks. And if you're not acquainted with a stickleback, uh, the non-scientific term for a stickleback would be tiddler. So these are little river fish. And what he did was to divide these into a number of groups and put them into tanks in his lab where he had feeders set up. And one of the feeders was very, very generous. It would give lots of food to the fish. The other feeder was like my school dinner lady and also the canteen at the hospital where I work, uh, where it was very stingy with its portions. And so they wanted to see how quickly would the fish learn that they should eat in one place, not the other, because they'll get fed better. So they did that. Once the fish had apparently learned this, and you can test them quite easily, they then confined the fish to a sort of fish viewing gallery in the tank. So the fish could see the whole tank but not go and feed and not interact with anyone else in the tank. They then put a second group of fish in the tank and repeated the experiment but with a twist. They swapped round the two feeders. So the stingy one became the generous feeder, the generous feeder became the stingy one. And the question they're asking is, because this first group of fish could only see the second group of fish eating... If they were only learning by their own experience, when they were later released into the tank, if they had not learned by watching the other fish, they would swim straight to the feeder they'd learned always gave them the best portions and then discover their mistake. On the other hand, if they could learn by watching what others got up to, then as soon as you let them go, they should be able to swim to the right feeder. So they're looking at... At fish feeding, they're not looking, they can't see the food directly. What they're looking at is basically how much food is being eaten, how much they're actually nibbling. Exactly. How much the other fish, the demonstrators as they call them, are actually getting fed. And that's exactly what they found. We took all the demonstrating fish out first. So it was just left alone in the tank without any food at either feeder. And the question was, which way do you want to swim? Where do you want to go? And only under the conditions where it observed 
others feeding at a particularly high rate, did it go towards that feeder? And this is indicative of what we called a hill climbing strategy. Now that simply means that it's a strategy whereby you're going to increase your fitness, that is your chance of survival or reproductive success, by making an appropriate choice. It would only copy the preference of the other fish when it would pay to do so. And that's the really clever thing, because what the team did was to vary how generous the generous feeder was, and the fish would only copy the other fish if they saw that they were being fed better than they would have done under the old arrangement. So it was a very clever learning strategy on the part of the fish. And the same thing gives us clues, according to Jeremy Kendall, as to where we get our own learning strategies from. To be able to make selective use of social information when it pays to use it is something that may well underlie a lot of the reason why we've been able to accumulate culture over time, for example, developing technology by making smart decisions about when to learn from others. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientist.com. Well, another issue that's been hitting the headlines lately is that of the plight of our beloved bees. So we sent Mira Synthalingham down to London to the Wellcome Trust to find out what all the buzz is about. This week saw the unveiling of a taxi dressed up as a bee driving around the streets of London. Now, why is a taxi dressed like a bee, you ask? Well, this bee cab has been custom made to celebrate Pestival a festival that celebrates insect life, which is taking place on London's South Bank this coming September. And the theme for this year's festival is the collapse of bee colonies around the world. Bridget Nichols is the festival director. The key theme of this year's festival is bees, and we're creating the Queen Elizabeth Hall. We're turning into the Queen Bee Hall, and it's going to be called the Bee Social. And it's all about people coming together from different disciplines to discuss colony collapse and creating a critical mass. I just think that it's very important to get urban people thinking about saving the bees because they've got balconies, they can plant flowers for their urban bees. I think that we we are in danger of losing our bees and obviously we should do something about it while we can. Festival director and organiser Bridget Nichols. This plight of bees is a theme well chosen as bee populations have been decreasing at an alarming rate in recent years with bumblebees in the UK estimated to have fallen by 60% since 1970 and in some parts of the country honeybees by up to 80%. The repercussions of this disease are enormous, with the bees' pollination services having a commercial and economic value of around £20 to £50 billion worldwide. As bees don't just make honey, but they pollinate more than 90 of the flowering crops we rely on for our food sources. Wellcome Trust scientist Pat Goodwin explained why these services are so valuable. Fruits won't ripen, we won't get flower seeds without having pollination which actually fertilises the seeds so that they can grow into fruits, apples, pears, and all the flowers that we love in our gardens. They depend on pollinators as well. So no more apples, pears, or pretty flowers. Pat told me more about why this decrease is thought to be happening. Nobody really knows the answer. There are lots of theories. One thing is climate change, which is the warmer winters, are affecting bee hibernation, for example, and upsetting their whole sort of life cycle. There's new pathogens coming up, the varroa mite, but it's not just the varroa mite, it carries viruses. 
so it lives on the bees, but it also transmits viruses between bees. Then there's lots of issues around modern agriculture, whereby you have vast fields which are then harvested, so there's nothing left for bees to pollinate. And, of course, they use the nectar and then take it to their hives and make it into honey. Another thing, I think, is probably in breeding. Bees have been bred to be non-aggressive and to produce lots of honey, and that is probably meaning that they're losing some genes which are important for their vitality. Now, a buzzword at the moment, thought to be causing some of the big falls in population numbers, is colony collapse disorder, where entire colonies are dying or disappearing for no known reason. This has happened on a larger scale in the US, but is increasingly happening worldwide. Beekeeper Steve Benbow has over 350 commercial hives nationwide, so I asked how this plight in bee numbers has affected his trade and if his hives have experienced colony collapse. We don't really see that directly at the moment, but we do see uh, trouble from, say, varroa, a parasitic mite that latches onto the, to the bees, and this brings in lots of other diseases such as cloudy wing virus. It causes a deformity in the, in the wings. The diseases we have to keep on top of and try and sort of learn new techniques, things like icing sugar. It's a very good way of managing uh, sort of varroa at the moment that's being trialled where the bees are what we call a hygienic behaviour where they're cleaning themselves and hopefully knocking off the mites and cleaning and grooming each another to help uh, reduce this uh, terrible infestation that can take place really. So beekeepers like Steve Benbow are finding new ways to get around these problems. But is getting around these diseases in honeybees enough? What about the other species being affected? Well, April 2009 saw the launch of the Insect Pollinators Initiative, where £10 million, donated by many UK funders, including the Wellcome Trust and Natural Environment Research Council, will be used to try and understand the decrease in bee populations. Pat Goodwin told me how the initiative plans on doing this. What we hope to do is to bring together researchers in different fields to look at all these complex interactions and if we can understand what is underlying the issues facing bees we might be able to do something about stopping it. So whilst researchers are trying to find out the causes and a cure to this problem why not find out a bit more about it or even learn how to keep bees as a hobby at this year's festival taking place from the 4th to the 6th of September at the Southbank Centre in London. That was Naked Scientist Vera Synthillingham reporting on the dramatic fall in numbers of our bee populations. That's all we have for this week's Naked Scientist Newsflash, which featured Chris Smith, Helen Scales and Mira Senthalingam. The Naked Scientist Newsflash is produced by me, Ben Valsler. If you enjoyed the Newsflash, then please check out the Naked Scientist podcast, where we bring you the latest in science news, along with interviews, answers to your questions and a kitchen science experiment to try out at home. Join us on the web at thenakedscientists.com and we'll be back with another roundup next week. The Naked Scientist Newsflash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.